I was twenty when it happened. It was a dark autumn night on the banks of the River Elbe, the coal fires of Hamburg's stolid and crumbling tenements adding their chemical tang to the evening's damp mist. I'd been handed my match ticket as we left Feldstrasse U-Bahn station and then headed up the stairs in a one-way throng. Everyone around me was singing, stamping and letting fall emptied cans of Holston. They rattled percussively on the walkways. Through the turnstiles with a creak, mumbled thanks, a drop of fag ash and half a ripped ticket pushed back. Then up the dozen steps and into the Nordkurve, just as Hans Alba's Auf der Reeperbahn started to splutter and crackle through the megaphone speakers fixed to the overhanging roof of the main stand and the stanchions. Smoke and steam rose from the crowd, thousands of shining eyes turning towards the dew-speckled field as kickoff grew near. Someone brought me a bratwurst with a ripple of sweet mustard along its glistening top edge and a foaming beer in a plastic glass. Just then, the teams ran out, a roar went up, a floodlight failed and everybody laughed. I laughed too, so loud I almost spat out some sausage. So this is football, I thought. And everything changed. That was an extract from the brand new, wonderful book, Square Peg Round Ball, Football, TV and Me, by Ned Bolting. Published by Bloomsbury, priced at fourteen ninety nine, and available from the When Saturday Comes shop and other booksellers. Welcome to When Saturday Comes, the half-decent podcast that strikes the ball through a forest of legs and beyond a hapless goalkeeper. I'm Daniel Gray, and joining me are When Saturday Comes magazine editor Andy Lyons and writer Harry Pearson. Please consider becoming a member of the When Saturday Comes supporters club on Patreon. From just $2 a month, which is around pound fifty-five, you'll get access to bonus episodes and material plus exclusive merchandise. Find out more by heading to patreon.com slash when Saturday comes. Harry, can you tell me about this suite of choice that we didn't get to mention in our last recording two weeks ago? Yes, it was. The, it's the Paynes Army and Navy drop, which I always associate with going to football. My granddad often would have a bag of them in his pocket, and they are sort of actually they're 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 really delicious. They're, so the best sweet, I'm, the best sweet. I'm afraid. <laughs> aniseed and licorice, I think. Is it? I think they are. I think they, but they give a slight impression that there's a medicinal quality to yeah, them, don't yeah. they? They're not, you know, because the army and navy, obviously, you wouldn't want <laughs> you wouldn't want Turkish delight. You wouldn't want your soldiers eating. I'm Turkish feeling slightly delight. better, and almost like I might sign up. Afterwards. Yeah, I feel like later on, I might yeah. and I might cough, yeah. and a large a large amount of kind of coal dust will come out that will be dislodged by them. It's one of those medicinal things like sarsaparilla and dandelion and burdock. That's right, it's in that... Mo- There's a certain dandelion and burdock yeah. element to it, actually. Uh, well captured. And, and you haven't even tasted them yet, because no, you're saving I'm, it. I am. You're saving, you're, you're, you, you save those things for best. For, you save I them do. for last, don't on, you? On a plate, I save my favourite thing. <laughs> As if talking to Andy and I isn't better than a sweet. <laughs> and Vimto is the other drink like that. I, I didn't realise Vimto had such a prestigious past. It's... Well over a hundred years old. There's a statue to Vimto in Manchester. Is it? Was it? Oh, but no, it stands for something tonic. Mm. I always thought it was a bit like watery Ribena. The Ribena I used to like when I was a kid. I think it was really bad for you. It was marketed as being very healthy, but it was actually quite bad for your teeth. You and Vimto was, it felt like a slightly weaker Ribena. I used to think. But if either of them wish to sponsor the podcast, oh, they're they're obviously entirely welcome. I love yeah. purple yeah. liquid. Yeah, exactly. Purveyors of purple liquid are fine by us. I've been enjoying, again, the letters page of When Saturday Comes, the current issue 395. There's been a fantastic thread over the last few issues about football-obsessed teachers. Andy, any come to mind for you? Yes, uh, there's Mr. Beddo, I think I can probably mention his name. He might might even be listening to this. He was a history teacher who, I remember during the uh, Italy-England World Cup qualifying game in 1976, we had a lesson with him, and he kept disappearing into a storeroom during the lesson. Twice when he came 
out from the storm, he'd say, Italy have scored. And that was all we <laughs> needed to know. And they just carried on with the lesson. Italy won the game 2-0. He was a Villa fan. I don't, I'm not quite sure he ended up teaching in Merseyside, actually. But um, he had this story once about how he once got, he knew a journalist who um, was a Villa fan, uh, wrote about Villa and got him into the dressing room after a game. He met some of the Villa players, including Jimmy Coombs, who was a Villa goalkeeper at the time. And a little while later, the journalists were talking to Jimmy Coombs about the particular game. And Jimmy Coombs said, oh, yeah, the main thing I remember about that game was there was this arsehole in the dressing room afterwards. We couldn't get rid of him. And that was Mr. Bado, who <laughs> told the joke against himself. <laughs> he might not have said arsehole, actually. Mind you, we were about 17. It was in the sixth form, so he may have done, in fact. Um, we also um, had a French teacher. I had a, someone who was in my class at the time called David Lawson, who I'm still friends with, actually, which is also the name of a not very good Everton goalkeeper at the time and the our French teacher, Mr. Lunt, often used to point out whenever David Lawson had got something wrong, whatever, that he was also shared his name with the moderately talented Everton goalkeeper. So I never actually found out whether Mr. Lunt was an Everton fan or whether he was a Liverpool fan. Who was, 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 there a chant about, was there a chant about the Mr. Lunt? I can't imagine there would have been. I don't know why there would have been. You may have to spell that one out. Well, the teacher that I remember is at my primary school, where the teacher who organised the first football team that I ever played in, Mr. Thompson, who I think I think was a, I suspect was a West Ham fan, very much of the the sort of school of was it what was it not in the school of science that, that was Everton. What was what team? Sorry, West I thought Ham. I wasn't listening. Where's <laughs> it drifted off? Um, I don't know. Was it the uh, West the, Ham were called so anyway, academy or something? The academy. Like something like, I think he was a West Ham fan. Anyway, he, our school football team. We got our first game. Uh, as as was you know would carry on throughout my career. Went to play Stokesy local rivals, and we were thrashed six one. And then the next day, Mr. Thompson's wife was a ballet teacher, and she, we were made to stay after school. The school football team, and she made us do ballet exercises, which Mr. Thompson said were to you know to strengthen us because it was ballet made you stronger. But actually, obviously, were to humiliate us in a, a, and a technique later stolen by Martin Magdog Allen, yeah. I would imagine. Did you have to wear tutus? No, he didn't have to wear tutus, but just the very fact of having to stand holding the fence, lifting our, you know, lifting our legs up like a sort of dog, <laughs> an incontinent dog. The anyway. inspiration for Billy Elliot, perhaps. Perhaps it was, actually, yeah. The teacher that came to mind for me was the history teacher, Mr Walton, and it wasn't that he had talked about football, but I used to have a thing where I tried to get away with putting footballers' names in English essays and history essays and things like that. And aged about 13 or 14, I used Owen Archdeacon in an essay about medieval York, I think it was. And he actually spotted it and circled it and put an exclamation mark around it, which I thought was a lovely little (laughs) secret code that he knew all about Barnsley midfielders. And from then on, me and Henry Walton were good mates. Well, you knew him by his first name. When I was trying to think of his name, all I could remember was Henry. It's only just come back to me that he was called Mr Walton. Was that his actual name? It wasn't that type of school or anything. We just called him History Henry, I think. (laughs) And another letter, quite a revelation, I think, Harry. Someone may have met the Keeper of the Cup. That's right, that was good, wasn't it? And 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 the Keeper of the Cup, did he he show him a dent in the trophy? Yeah. Showed him a this talks back to your um, column from the last issue of When Saturday Comes. That's right, yeah, because I met, I met the, or saw the keeper, encountered the keeper of the cup, at, I think, at Bedlington, at the Dr. Pitt Welfare Ground, one of the finest named stadiums. Um, and yeah, so that was good to know that he's, he's, he, he has been around and people have seen him. I don't know if he's still Mysterious if he's still gothic figure that he is, possibly undead. Yeah, I wonder if also is he actually is he he's no he's usually with the trophy and the whole thing. Whether he was just like a maverick person who just turned up with a trophy. 
Or does he keep like a, other cups? Who is the masked man? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, he's, he's sort of like, oh, oh, I can't do that because I'm over in, I'm over in, I'm over in France. I'm look, I'm, or I'm looking after the Ryder Cup this that's week. That's right. Yeah. I've got that. Yes, yeah, so I've got. He's got a stable of cups that or he the looks Copa after. Copa de a Throwback to the previous episode. <laughs> the right. lower league Italian cup. That's right. He's got. They say that. They say that the people who have a cup go. There's only one man you've got to get, and that's him. He's a guy. He really look he's after your cup. He's got his own cup. plinth. He brings his own plinth with him. Because maybe he was showing that dent, you know, as a way of sort of saying this is not, this didn't, not on my watch, not on my watch, Mister. This dent wouldn't happen in his garage of cups. <laughs> That's right, exactly. His trophy annex. Andy, this podcast goes to Patreon subscribers on January twenty fourth, which is the second anniversary of the death of Marquis Smith, who is quite the when Saturday comes supporter. Yes, um, I saw an interview with Mel- in Melody Maker in the late 80s where Mark quoted something from an issue when Saturday comes. I thought, blimey, you read the magazine. So I did a, was doing a bit of freelancing for Melody Maker and I managed to get, in a convoluted way, uh, an address for him, started sending him the magazine. And they started sending us Christmas cards. Um, got the first one that year, actually. We had a little collection of them. Since didn't get them every year. Got about 15 of them I got them at home. I put one or two up on... Uh, Facebook after he he died. And this kind of very spidery handwriting, um, various advice about things to do with football and other stuff. And we'd often sign off um, from your pals in the fall, which is quite a, mm-hmm. a, a, a nice thing. And um, when Saturday comes is mentioned in his autobiography, uh, Renegade, uh, I won't read it out, but it's on page 222 for any of you who've got the hardback. <laughs> um, he says he buys when Saturday comes every month, though so he need, really needn't have done because we were sending it to him. So if he was buying it as well, then great, but um, he didn't have to because he was getting a free one. He once offered to write an article for us, so he in, uh, met him a couple of times, and he offered to write an article for us about Tony Coleman, who was his hero, who was a Man City winger in the late 60s, who City bought from Doncaster, was in the league-winning team in 1968, but mostly played in the lower divisions. We had one really good year and, and won the league with City. the kind of player that I think you know, Mark Smith sort of uh, admired. And there's a great team photo from that period when all the City players standing in the back row of a photo have got their arms down and Tony Coleman's got his arms folded. It's like a sort of <laughs> typical maverick thing to do. Um, and Mark also sent us, we had a, a, a series called Embarrassing Moments where readers sent in uh, stories about half a dozen different things that they'd uh, done and subsequently regretted. And he just sent them in uh, on spec. And this is in, in 1990 from issue number uh, 35 of WSC. And I'll kind of read them out. We used to number them. So um, number one, leading the chant of we held them to a draw at the school canteen after Man City drew 0-0 at home with Fenerbahce of Turkey in the European Cup when they went out 2-1 in <laughs> aggregate. The second one, writing Catholic gits on the back of a Man United Italian supporters coach on the service station on the M6. Third one, which we've referred to in the podcast before, going for a job at Louis Edwards Meat Factory HQ, getting it, then trying to get out of it, even if they did offer me £8.50 a week plus a season ticket to Man United. Um, (laughs) Fourth, seeing George Jones of Berry jogging in italics in a park. This is obviously something he was appalled by. Um, (laughs) Five, lying to schoolmates that my dad was a director of Berry and getting found out. And six, this is the best one, shouting pie face at Prestwich Hayes centre forward during an amateur cup game against Sutton United and getting punched. Then, at the same match, invading the pitch and getting arrested by a navvy who lived at the top of our street who also happened to be a weekend copper. (laughs) (laughs) Material for several fall songs in there, I think.
I was suffering the co-commentary of Glenn Hoddle recently and I remembered that I'd once seen his little brother Carl playing for Barnet. So which less successful footballing siblings spring to mind for you, Harry? Well, I was thinking, I remember that when, uh, when, when Wayne Rooney's brother Graham was in the Everton Academy, there, was all, there were several reports in the newspaper that Everton insiders saying that he was that he had all the talent to be even better than his older brother, which I think as soon as you read it, you knew that that because there's a sort of almost like a rule in football that if you've got an old you know the older sibling's good, the younger one won't be. I think that's you know more or less. And I think that as a, Oliver James, a psychologist, he argued that elder siblings tend to try and please their parents by following conventional paths to success and are constantly anxious about their status, whereas younger siblings rebel and go off backpacking. And if you see the play, the brothers who've been successful, elder brother Jack Charlton, uncompromising central yeah. defender, a bit like a police officer probably, and then Bobby Charlton, archetypal, drifting, visionary maverick, you know, sort of visionary. Always backpacking through Always the Always back, backpacking, yeah. backpacking, exactly. Just, you just can picture Off Bobby. You can picture Bobby Charlton backpacking. And the case well, of the, could. And the case of the Charlton's a third Charlton brother, Gordon, who was on the books of Leeds and didn't make it. So imagine being the third Charlton brother who didn't quite make yeah, it as a player. That must have been tough. I think he's now a leading walking footballer. Yes, that's he? right. Yeah, there's a there's another brother, Tommy as well. Yeah, I think they all brothers. played. For, did yeah. he play for Leeds? There was one, another one who played for Leeds. No, that was good. That was, that was good. Right. Okay. Was, I think they all play professional football at some to some degree, but also I was thinking of we mentioned Peter Knowles on a previous because Cyril Knowles, his elder brother, was a fullback, and then Peter Knowles was an inside forward. Yeah, well, it's, it's strange. Also, I think if you get an older brother who isn't as good a player as a younger, but that must be harder. So, like, there's Graham Wilkins, who was a defender at Chelsea, used to get I think barracked a bit occasionally by Chelsea, but a younger, uh, older brother of Ray Wilkins. There's also a, an odd one was. Um, the Greenoff brothers, Jimmy and Brian, where Brian, who's the younger brother, who's kind of a defensive midfielder, played for England. Jimmy, probably a better player, didn't play for England. Um, he, he played for, he was an attacking midfielder, mm. played yeah, for Man yeah. United, and started, started off with Leeds in the 60s. And that's kind of a, a weird one where you, the frustration possibly, you know, you may be a better player and your, your younger brother is the one who gets the international caps. Um, I mean, there are also... It must be obviously very difficult if you're a younger brother of Diego Maradona. So two of his younger brothers did have did have playing careers. One of whom did play for Argentina under 16 level. So it was obviously wasn't uh, a bad player. That was Hugo Maradona. He's the third brother, and there's another brother, Raúl, who's the second one. But in both cases, they kind of drifted around from country to country, invariably ending up playing in Japan. And he sensed that it's the Marad. That was obviously. The Maradona name was the thing <laughs> that got them got them work. Though again, probably not bad players exactly. Was it, was that, if they hadn't had that name, you know, they might have been seen as kind of okayish players. But of course, they're never going to remotely live up. No, but I was thinking as well. There was a couple of because um, Joel Cantona didn't he? he played for Stockport. Yeah, he played about three games for Stockport. He was a defender. He yeah. did play a bit in France, um, presumably Eric, because it was at Stockport must have got him some. Yeah, and then work. and then and then uh, when Bar- Mario Balotelli was at Man City, his brother Enoch. Played for Salford City yeah. when they were Salford City, not the when they were still the smallest club in Britain or whatever the, that ludicrous documentary build them as. So There's also was, the the five Clark brothers, of whom Alan was the best known one. He's the one who played for England. He was the second brother. Now, four of them were strikers. The odd one out was um, 
Kelvin, who's the only one who didn't have much of a career, only played about ten games. But he was a defender. He obviously rebelled. He's the <laughs> he brother rebelled number four. into defence. He's the, the gummo of of the Clark brothers, <laughs> who um, he decided to become a defender. And he's the only one who didn't have much of a career, unfortunately. So maybe he should have become he a striker. Stuck with like what the rest they, of they, he should have stuck with the family trade. Yeah. <laughs> but there's also a lot of twins playing football that I'm quite because there was you know there's the the De Boer twins and the Van der Kerkhoff twins, people would remember. Um, but I don't think there's ever been any. I don't know twins that play. There's no twins that play for. There's no twins that have played for uh, for, for England. I don't think. And um, but I'm, actually, when we come to the record section. Oh right, yes. Yeah, I that's what I was, I'm trying I was, to defer waiting, you. Sorry, now. I had You're waving there me. There was something I was going to add. Well, to we'll add that. We're not going to say, we're say it here. Do, we'll go do the record. We'll, we'll go off on a different. Um, area. But what I was interested, the number of the number of uh, footballing twins there have been. There have been hardly any cricket twi- people who played Test cricket as twins. It's only recently that there's been was Hamish and James Marshall were the first identical twins ever to play Test cricket. But there's been all those football twins. You'd think cricket would be more suited. One bats, one bowls, whereas no one really wants to go in goal. Yeah, exactly. You'd think, There's you know, Wall- Wallace, Ray and Rod Wallace are twins, I think. Danny Wallace's younger brothers. All right, OK. Yeah. Yeah. And there were Yugoslav brothers called the Vujovic's who played for, he both played for Yugoslav in the World Cup and they moved from Hadjik Split to at least two French clubs. They kept moving together. But there was a, they were a full-back and a striker. But they, obviously the clubs in each case who bought them, maybe the, what, the striker was a slightly better player, but they bought the, the other twin as well. But he was obviously... A quite good player because he did also play international football. I wonder if they had any of those issues because parents of modern twins often don't dress them the same because they think it creates some sort of issues. But of course, wearing football kits. Well, back, if, back if, there, you, aren't if you play for the same team, you're in you're in trouble, aren't you? And quite a lot of the twins did because the Van der Kerkhoffs always played. Do they always play? They for played the same? for twenty and and PSV. So yeah, they, they been pretty tricky once, when they were yeah. playing for Holland. If they, they their parents had gone no 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 he <laughs> put him in the put him in the away kit put that way, put he's his put own Rennie, man. put Rennie, put Rennie in the away kit it brings to mind also the question of playing for your father as manager effectively yeah. so that's a, a whole different dynamic I, I, I always thought it was a strange thing if you're a manager to employ your own son even if the son is is a really good player I and mean, that was obviously the case with Nigel Clough who was a very popular player at Forest. But if he's living at home at the time, you kind of think, especially, that the other players are always going to be wary of, of talking about things in the dressing room and stuff because you don't know if it's going to get back to the manager and all that kind of stuff. And also when managers sign their own sons, John Bond certainly signed his son, Kevin, at least a couple of times. And again, you'd think, other players would think, well, that looks like favouritism. Roy Keane recently, um, slightly surprising, I thought, but nonetheless, it was kind of interesting in the public um, Q&A about Man United was very critical of Alex Ferguson for playing Darren Ferguson as often as he did because Darren got a championship medal one season might have been Alex Ferguson the first season when they won the championship where he played enough games to to, to get a medal and you kind of think well he, that potentially was jeopardising if, if Darren wasn't really that good and he mostly played below the top level he played for Wolves in the second division and, and a bit for Wrexham lower down didn't ever play for Scotland that was possibly jeopardising the team's chances if you're giving your son enough games to get a medal and a strange thing in a way for you'd think for Alex Ferguson to do um, Peter Shelton Gordon Strachan both when they were managers their sons I think played for their teams Paul Dalgleish moved a couple of times to teams where Kenny was manager again manager signing a son who doesn't quite make it but then the son's kind of following the man the dad around is kind of an odd thing to do I think really you think it'd be counterproductive I think Paul Dalgleish once went out with a member of S Club 7 
That's an achievement. There you are. Well, you know, just so you know, don't don't rule him out. No, 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 I wasn't. I wasn't writing him off. <laughs> but I was thinking it must be like because I, I had a mum who was a, who was an infant school you had teacher. A I had a mum. <laughs> just let me finish the sentence. <laughs> I did. I did have a mum, and she was an infant school teacher. And the worst thing is to end up in your, you know, in your mother's class or in a in a oh, parent's yeah, class, yeah, as it yeah. were. And that must. I would have thought that would be a very similar situation. Did that? You didn't. Did that happen to you? Then you it were, did. Yeah, my, my my infant school. Yeah, briefly, very briefly. Right. But it was always, you know, it was a sort of, te- you know, it was a terrible thing to be to be like have your your mother or father as your teacher. Yeah, because there were a couple of teachers at my primary school whose kids. We're never in there. We're, we're never in there because there was two classes for each year. So they yeah. were never in there. I think it was only briefly, but I didn't, you know. But then when you were they're talking about the, you know, sort of being the footballer. Yeah. You know, when the hairdryer treatment by Ferguson. Yeah. Would the manager out, yell at his son, or yeah. would he do it more because it's his son? Would he do it more, and then would he carry on in the car on the way home? Yeah. I say slightly traumatized yeah. <laughs> from my own infant school experiences. And then, or would the mum, would the son say in the dressing room, "Well, wait till mum hears about this." <laughs> obviously, none of the other players can say. <laughs> I used to play against one of Gordon Strachan's sons, not the one who made it as a footballer, Gavin, but his younger brother, Craig. I was left back and he was a right wing for Weatherby Athletic. And uh, I came up against him a lot and Strachan would be there extremely vociferous at the Weatherby team and his own son. Imagine being the manager of the Weatherby team with Gordon Strachan shouting at you. That way, you know, you shouldn't really turn up. You should have kept quiet. It's the type of dreams some people have and wake up in a cold sweat, but it I, really happened. I was saying that, but it's that sort of thing where you could just drop him from the team just on purpose. Take him off, substitute him after five minutes. <laughs> hey, what do you think you're playing at? Come here. Please give us a few stars and a good review on the Apple Podcast app or elsewhere, for instance, in graffiti on a bridge over the M23. OK, I'll leave it up to you and we'll settle up later. Will you be needing anything else, love? No, with this lot and a bit of luck, we'll be fine. Okay, let's have a letter from one of our Patreon subscribers. Tristan Browning asks, are any of you football completists? And goes on, do you have collections of physical things, Panini stickers, albums, matchday programmes, etc.? Or are you perhaps a completist for football lists, doing the 92, seeing a game in every European country, etc.? As someone who falls squarely into this category, I wonder if any of you are slaves to it yourselves. Andy. Um, well... Quite a few different things that people collected with football. I never really got interested. I used to buy a program at a game, but I was never actually that interested in programs as a thing to keep. Never really bought football shirts, replica shirts, any of that sort of stuff. Um, had Sabuto on as a kid, but never really collected it as such. But the one thing I got into um, was uh, football card sticker albums. Uh, got quite a lot of international ones. Um, in the pre-internet days, in the 80s, I used to buy the program first. You could get quite often quite cheap English football albums from off of the pre-Panini albums. Um, then I found through World Soccer, um, there's this uh, Belgian guy, Gilbert in Ostend, who acted as a sort of clearinghouse <laughs> for, for people who are uh, card uh, traders. So I had some of the English albums. Uh, he put me in touch with, say, a French collector who didn't have the English album. I'd then get a French album back. He's a complex trading arrangement, a bit like the Hanseatic League. <laughs> Not really sure what Gilbert got out of it exactly, but somehow he benefited. Um, obviously, these days in the int- uh, with the internet, it's much easier to get your, your albums than it used to be. Um, uh, there used to be this guy who is, we mentioned the very first issue when Saturday comes, uh, Stig, who was a, an interpreter, maybe still be a Danish guy, who's an interpreter at the EU in Luxembourg, and he used to issue catalogues a couple of times a year. He used to buy um, yearbooks, it's a clever idea, yearbooks and pre-season magazines and Panini albums from Panini, I think, and sell them in, and through um, his catalogues. Um, and it was pretty much the only place in those days you could get that kind of stuff. Um, 
I never really got into the, the real collect, big collector's market football football cards, the cigarette cards, the pre-war ones, but which I never got into part because they're just very expensive. Other things where people make serious money. The cigarette cards are mostly pre-war because there was a pretty much a ban on or paper printing during extra paper printing during the war, and they never restarted the, the production of cigarette cards. So they're mostly Victorian and early early um, early football history. Cards. Yeah, I haven't got cigarette cards. I, I did. I, there was a period when I did collect cigarette cards from that period. So I have got, still got some because I remember I've got the. I think it must be it's a 1930s set where. The, the Middlesbrough player is Stuart, who played for England. I can't remember his first name. Bobby Stewart, maybe? Um, but Stanley Matthews is on it and Rach Carter and people like that. But there were some nice ones that they've got, the, the, like caricatures, but they were, they're from the 20s and they're quite expensive. But now the problem is, that I think with the internet now, it's so easy to buy all this stuff. Yeah, you used to have to kind of go to kind of yeah. collector's fairs. And so there was some sort of, per- there was like a journey that you went on and you got there and then you had this kind of like, if you collected stuff seriously, I, I've talked to other collectors about this, there was like a mad collector of various things, that you have this kind of collector's dream where you find a shop that has all the stuff you want in it and then you, but you haven't got any money and then you go to get some money and when you come back, the, the shop has disappeared. It's like a famous, <laughs> this terrible collector's nightmare that's disappeared and turned into a bookshop or something terrible and useless like that. See, I wondered if that story was going to be that they wouldn't want that to happen because once the chase is over, their life is well, over. Well, I think that's part of the problem with the internet is then you can mm. just buy whatever you want, you know, mm. and it, it sort of takes... It's the thrill of the chase. The yeah. thrill of the... It was the hunt that thrilled me, <laughs> I, I discovered. Not actually the cigarette cards, so I sort of stopped. But I did... At one point, I had quite a lot of football board games, like old football board games, in which my favourite was a game called Car Soft which was football played with cards, with a, a sort of set of cards. And I remember that was from the 30s. And it said, you know, um, write in to the manufacturer to find out the um, the site of your local car sock league. <laughs> <laughs> which I was tempted to write into this old old address, like number one Holborn or somewhere. You know? <laughs> SWY. Anyway, so yeah, so I did used to collect those. So I, the bit, but I never... I've, and I've never done the thing of wanting to go to all the grounds. You've, I guess you've collected quite a lot of grounds, if that's the right term, by accident, by going to so many Northern League places. Yeah, it was a, it was a sort of thing where quite often, if you turned up at a ground, the the, <laughs> the people would say, the, the game would say, are you lads ground hoppers? And we'd always go, no, no, yeah. no, we're not ground hoppers. No, we're just middle-aged men who like to go to different non-league <laughs> games every week. We're not ground hoppers. <laughs> but why we denied it quite so vehemently, I don't know. There were, there were, they have these very specific rules, ground hoppers, don't they? But there has to be a programme at the game and it has to be like a senior level game, I think. And various Some things. of them have to do certain things because I remember going to the, the Northern the Northern League used to have this ground hopper weekend where they, they cleverly actually, it was a good marketing thing for them, they staged the kickoffs so they could go yeah. to like three games in a day and they got, you know, they would get like a, clubs that normally would get 80 fans got sort of eight, you know, got sort of four or five hundred of these ground hoppers. But I do remember at that once that there was a guy who had a photo album and he was showing it to someone and we were standing behind him or sitting behind him and it was photos of corner flags from grounds that he'd been. And then there was another guy I remember who went, who asked permission to go on the pitch and touch the crossbar because he had to touch the crossbar in order to count it as a ground that he'd been to. Which is obviously quite a lot easier at Evenwood Town than it would be at Old Trafford, I imagine. <laughs> where he would just get, we get ejected and he'd keep doing it, but he'd have to see the full 90 minutes and touch the crossbar. Yeah. I have a friend who has to see a goal, and he's been to hundreds and hundreds of grounds, but he does go back if he doesn't see a goal. On the sticker front, my favourite sticker album is the 88-89 Panini sticker album, which happens to be the year I started going to football. 
and I would love still to finish that, but I've had an, an extra unexpected pleasure from that album in that I've been able to show two of the footballers their stickers in it in, in recent months. I took it to show Mark Walters when I was interviewing him, and he very much enjoyed going talking about people's hair and things like that, which was <laughs> tremendous. And then Brian McClare recently, through the Man United squad, and he uh, told me that it was Gordon Strachan's theory, when you looked at the team photo sticker, that the further away players were in the team photo, the more likely they were to, to not be, play and to be sold. Yeah, <laughs> this was something that was, that was widely known among the Man United Well, squad. I had this thing where I had these um, Yugoslav albums from the 1970s, and uh, I know this uh, Yugoslav guy, a uh, Serbian guy who lives in Canada, who's got a Facebook page where he puts up lots of Yugoslav, former ex-Yugoslavia football memorabilia stuff. And he put up some pages from this Yugoslav sticker on that included second division players as well as first division players. And he's friends with a few ex-footballers. And a few of them were commenting on some of these pictures and saying, wait a minute, that's not, that's not Ivan, that's Stefan. They've got this wrong. They're, they'd made some mistakes in these albums from well, second division players, got the captions mixed up from 40, 45 years ago. Fantastic. Finally writing some wrongs. Yeah. I enjoyed asking on. the players about if they remembered photo call day because it must be such a, a thing in the, the middle of July to be summoned to the ground for these opportunities and whether they bought their own stickers and that was a... a and note. also, the, who are the most obscure players to have their own sticks? And there are mm. several players, especially from like 60s, early 70s, only ended up playing a few league games. But each team would get like 15 players per album. And that if a club only regularly had 12 or 30 players, you get, would get reserve players having their own stickers. who would end up not playing very many league matches, but they've got their own sticker. You can't want much more than that in life. No. No, I think the other thing was when they with this, the early ones, like this before Panini, was like the star stickers. When they, and they, yeah, sometimes yeah. they just would impose someone on a different kit. They just put another player's head on it. It was like yeah, early yeah. Photoshop. Wasn't it? <laughs> they, they were really FK, the wonderful world of soccer stars. They were called. Yeah. yeah, there was a, there was a particularly gruesome. Also, there's something to do with the colour that they use because I remember having them as a boy, and there was three of the players from the final team that won the European Cup. And that there's something about the colour that they'd put on them. One of them certainly looked like he'd been the model for the Sea Devils in Doctor Who. <laughs> they, there's a lot of colourising of black and white photos. That's because the parent company was Spanish. So all the artwork was done in Spain. They, they produced albums in several different countries, including England and France, Belgium and Holland as well. So sometimes they, they made mistakes with, with, with the colours, I think. It was interesting that you both mentioned not buying programmes anymore, because I stopped as well. I think that's the general pattern, although I always buy one for my daughter when she's at games with me, and they're just piling up in her, her room uh, <laughs> and emits uh, lots of pink products. What do you feel the future of the, the programme is? Because I know, it's, you know there was that rule passed that they're no longer obligatory in the Football League. Well, they did. They dropped, make it, they dropped doing it at Carlisle. They, they stopped for a while, and all you could get was a sort of team sheet, but then I know they brought it back again, so presumably there must have been sufficient outcry, a sort of cr- cr- sufficient mumbling. It might have been on Look North. It might have been, and so they, they brought it back. But what was, what was annoying about that was we, the guy that I go to Carlisle with, we always buy... I always buy him a programme, I don't know why, it was some, some bizarre ritual. That I have, and we always had bought it from the same Tina boy who sells it. And it, during the times that we've been going there, he's gone from being a sort of 12-year-old primary school. Now he's probably like married with kids and it's the same bloke, you know. So that when there wasn't the programme, I felt sort of sad not to see him five times a year or whatever I see it. I, I hope he's still got out his fingerless gloves and uh, dark blue coat. He's still got his, his, still got his change. He's still got the change power. <laughs> Pushing it around. That's right. He's still got it there. Of course, one of the great things with old programmes, as with old newspapers, is the adverts, which you are very specific local adverts for sort of places around the ground and stuff, which you don't see anymore. A lot of programmes now 
quite a few of them are produced by agencies, so there's a kind of uniform look to a lot of them. Yeah, I think. well, I think and a lot of them are farmed down now, aren't for that they? Reason, I think. Yeah, because there was that the fantastic advert, because the, the one in the Middlesbrough programme was always the record shop, Prop Dean Witchley. <laughs> always said as if there was a different why he put that on and I did I think I mentioned that in a thing in on the Middlesbrough supporters and he actually wrote a letter to sort of to saying how much he'd enjoyed the, being, being remembered so maybe that was why he did it so that in future years and some wittering he might be in touch again he might be he'll be going way it really worked that's a degree of immortality <laughs> Okay, another question from a Patreon subscriber. Thanks to Tom Lines for this one. I still associate Spennymore in County Durham with the referee George Courtney, while the South Yorkshire town of Mexborough, which always sounded impossibly exotic to a youngster from Walsall, always evokes former Saddlers captain and now Church of England vicar Peter Hart. Are there any places in the UK or beyond that instantly bring to mind football people for you? I had a friend who's a Tooting and Mitcham fan. He used to be able to do this thing who could name the town that the referee was from. And so you could read out the name from the programme and he'd say, oh, Braintree or Berkhamstead or whatever. And if I was that referee, I'd be a bit scared, <laughs> I think, about that. But it rarely features anymore, does it? Graham Paul from Tring, Paul Dirk in Portland. I think they yeah. stopped doing it, didn't they? Yeah. To protect the, protect the, <laughs> the, protect the, the, Clive, protect the innocent. Clive Thomas from Triorkey. George Courtney is one that a lot of people seem to remember. Possibly the most yeah. famous thing to come out of Spennymore. You may dispute yeah. that, Harry. No, no, I can't. I can't, I, I can't really. I don't know why, why would I dispute it. Um, <laughs> penetration were from Fenny, Ferry Hill, weren't they? I think that's, that's what I was thinking. Of. That's what you were thinking. That's what you were thinking of. You were confused. I knew that's what you were. I knew that was what you were driving at somehow. I was always inclined to remember the referees' names more than where they're from. Leicester Chapter, I always liked his name, just because of the rhythm of it. Da, 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 da. And he's a, you know, he's a referee. And Trowford Mills, which sounds like some kind of artisanal cake shop. <laughs> <laughs> I was just thinking that not, not so, so much, a, uh, but, but from the name of somewhere, you formed an impression. I don't know why, yeah. what it was like. So I remember it was years. I'm at Borussia Mönchengladbach, I, I had always pictured it as this kind of alpine town out of sort of probably a bit like Sound of Music, you know, with sort of people in lederhosen. And when you're actually seeing it for the first time, probably on the same trip that I, I went to Cologne, which I mentioned on the previous podcast, it was a bit of a shock because it's not really a sort of Munchengladbach. It's sort of like a it's sort of like a German Sheffield or something, isn't yeah. it? So I wonder if that was sort of similar for sort of European, you know, the European, you know, from from mainland Europe, people from mainland Europe, continent, you know, the continent as we would used to call it, would have similar views. You know, they'd be thinking. Oh, Grimsby. That's yeah. right. Ooh, that's Scunthorpe. Right. That's right. Scunthorpe. Yeah. Yeah. Albion Rovers. Well, imagine Albion. What yeah. Albion must Make be like. sure you never miss an issue of When Saturday Comes by subscribing today. Not only will you have the magazine delivered to your door and save on the shop price, but you'll also receive discounts on books and T-shirts, plus get free access to our complete digital archive, which stretches all the way back to issue one in 1986. Go to shop.wsc.co.uk for more information okay it's that time in the podcast where we unleash some records upon you the unsuspecting listener all taken from the wonderful website 45football.com harry what do we have from you this time well, well i've gone we, we were talking about football twins and football brothers so i've gone for apparently the only football record made by footballing twins the first twins to play in the bundesliga erwin and helmut kremers who played for Borussia Mönchengladbach, not as glamorous a place as I imagined. Everything's kick, linking together so kick, much. Kickers off, kickers off and back, which I do imagine having a castle on a hill and, and sort of, and uh, later on for Schalke, and I think they recorded this when they were at Schalke. 
and uh, it's called Das Mansion Minor Trauma, the girl of my dreams. But obviously they were twins, but there's only one girl. Were they fighting over yeah. her, or were they doing that twin thing that we've all heard about, of swapping over without her knowing? It was the 70s. Is all I'm saying. I have no idea what that's referring to. Actually. <laughs> I'm keeping my, my innocence there. Whose well, dream was it? Which twin? Or do they have the same dreams? Maybe their twins have the same dreams. Dream I don't the know. Same dreams, you want the same things. Well, I have some Kremers twins facts that I was been, I've been withholding from Harry because we talked about this earlier. We I, talked about it all last night. I was trying to whittle. And I wasn't prepared Kremers to tell I wanted to save it for the listeners, which was um, Irvin Kremers, who's the striker. Very often, with you know, there's a, a striker and a defender. Mm-hmm. Um, Helmut, the, the defender, was in the 74 Cup squad. Irvin, who played for Germany in 72 European Championship uh, final, which some people say, oh, that was a better team than 74. Mm. I'm not one of those people who says that kind of thing because I don't really know or care, but that's what some people <laughs> say that. Um, Irvin would have been in the 74 World Cup squad, but he got sent off in the league game a few weeks before the World Cup and wasn't picked for disciplinary reasons and never played for Germany again, which is pretty tough, isn't it? Well, that, that's discipline. Yeah, that's what so. I call discipline. He could have won a World Cup. And you tell the modern just players that. Lost his head one day and that was the end of it. <laughs> that was the end of his trial. Yeah. In, a, in a team with Paul Brightner in it, uh-huh. he was considered too naughty. soccer song this time well mine is the uh, 1966 World Cup theme I didn't realize they had the uh, World Cup had a, uh, an official theme this is by um, Bert Whedon who uh, a, a name known to anybody who tried to learn to play the guitar in the 50s and 60s including some famous rock musicians he produced books on kind of learn to play guitar the easy way um, this is a although it's for the 66 World Cup it sounds distinctly early 60s or late 50s kind of twangy guitar a bit like the kind of music that would be in a nightclub scene in a Jerry Anderson puppet show I think. <laughs> Stingray or Thunderbirds in a nightclub scene it'd be this kind of music but nonetheless it's, it's a very um, it's an upbeat it's a toe tapper I think from Bert for uh, the 66 World Cup yeah the, the only reason I know Bert Whedon is from uh, Bonsai Dog Didar band we are normal and we want our freedom we are normal and we dig Bert Whedon Wow, yeah. swinging, yeah. swinging indeed. A bit, a bit sort of like those, those sort of um, Californian guitar. Yeah, thing, yeah surfy, like, surf, surf yeah. rumbles. It's very kind of like it's a pre-Beatles kind of guitar sound. Yeah. A very clean. Yeah, the shadows, sound. I suppose, yeah. as well. Yeah, yeah that sort of sound. Oh, oh, there was well, that yeah. was like the um, what was that uh, American band? That was well, they weren't surf. They were sort of surfy. Oh, um, the con- the, the Ventures. The Ventures, yeah, yeah, yeah the yeah. Ventures. There's a good film of them called uh, a Japanese film called Beloved Invaders because they were massively popular in Japan which has some fantastic Japanese people dancing on a on a pier at the beginning of it. it's very good dancing to the ventures anyway I'll leave that in leave it in leave <laughs> <laughs> that in that bit of pop trivia there well look out for it the ventures Beloved Invaders <laughs>
my own choice this time comes from Cagliari, Il Trionfo del Cagliari. Cagliari are 100 years old in 2020. Last won the league 50 years ago in 1970, so I'm predicting triumph for them in 2020, hence the selection, and they've just lost four games in a row. It's by uh, Franco Trincali, who confusingly is a Sicilian storyteller who went north to Sardinia for work, and a folk artist, political activist, left-wing rebel songs and all the rest. I can't believe that there wasn't opportunities in Sicily for a left-wing storytelling <laughs> folk singer. That's a, what, were, they, were they all the jobs, all the vacancies were taken? <laughs> There was jobs, was there the right that kind was, of money? That was, like the old, that was like the old days when people from the northeast would have to go all over the world seeking folk, seeing jobs. Seeking a picket line to sing to. <laughs> Calories uh, Championship, the day they clinched the championship, famously, the priest had arrested a couple of people in the town during the day and they took them to the football stadium and allowed them to see Calgary clinching the title oh. and they were handcuffed <laughs> to part of the stadium but nonetheless were allowed to watch the, the triumphal day. That's civilization. Yes. Noi siamo i vincitori, abbiamo vinto la battaglia, campioni d'Italia, ci possiamo dire. Oggi calma la tempesta, forza arriva insieme a Gori, 30.000 spettatori senza meno fanno festa. You've been listening to the When Saturday Comes podcast, produced and edited by me, Daniel Gray. Please have a think about supporting us on patreon.com slash whensaturdaycomes, which will give you access to bonus podcast material and other goodies. And please do join me, Andy and Harry, again next time for more vital, topical and half-decent chatter.